0: I hope you're still in Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be going through most of this particular chapter where Matthew tells his version, so to speak, of that resurrection Sunday. I was giving a lot of thought, though, to this idea that every single year churches gather and almost all churches around the world are probably preaching the same thing today. (laughs) They're all preaching somewhere from one of the Gospels or some other place in the Scriptures where it talks about Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. On this holiday known as Easter. Just like Christmas, by the way, the other most popular day in church, it's not so much when it's celebrated as much as what is celebrated on this particular day. I don't, you know, we can have a discussion later. I don't think Jesus was born on December 25th. We can talk about that later. But why, why is it? Have you ever wondered why Easter is always on a different day? Sometimes it's in March and sometimes it's later in April and it's always different. Why isn't there one day? By the way, this, there's a really good reason for that, by the way. And I think it plays into exactly what we see happen in Matthew 28. The reason why it's always different is because the church has deemed it a tradition, a history, all the way back in the year 325. At the special council of Nicaea that the church would honor the day of the Lord's rising from the dead on the very first Sunday after the first full moon of the spring equinox. So, with the first spring equinox and the first full moon after that, we keep the rising of Jesus celebrating on a Sunday, the first day of the week, just as it was. In this particular passage. Just as it was when Jesus walked out of that tomb. The first day of the week. Someday in spring. And the church has ever since made this day a special day of significance and remembrance of that specific fact. That as it says in our text. After the Sabbath. Toward the the dawn of the first day of the week. That's when all this commotion started. That's where history took its pivot point. That's where everything changed. We pay attention to that. That fact that Jesus is not in the grave. That's what we celebrate every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday. We pay a little bit more attention to it on Easter, but we could say every single Sunday that we come into church is a day in which we remember that Jesus, yes, he died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. And every Sunday we remember that fact. And especially today we remember that fact. And in fact, I could even go to say that everything that we are as believers in Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that very statement of belief depends upon the fact that he rose from the dead. Everything depends upon that. If that's true, everything is changed. If Jesus is alive and after being dead, everything's changed after that point. If that fact is false, we're wasting our time. This is, this is vain. And in fact, the Apostle, that's just not me saying that. That's Apostle Paul saying that in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and then your faith is in vain. It's futile. It's worthless. It means nothing. Quite a bold statement. But indeed, that's what we have to come to the realization that at the intersection of all belief and unbelief lies this core moment, the moment of Jesus walking out of the tomb. And if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified, and he walked out of that crypt where he was put and where he was buried, everything else means everything. It means that everything else is true. If he rose from the dead, then... All the things that Jesus said about himself, about the world, about his father, about this good news that he has come declaring, all of that's true and applicable and for you. If he didn't rise, Jesus was a liar. And his followers were just a bunch of false witnesses to another false Messiah and a long array of false Messiahs and they could just as easily be dismissed and cast off. We should really pay no attention to them if that's the case. And in fact, what we have in our text and what I'm going to declare to you this morning is that it is a fact. And yes, here this morning, you can can bank your life. Yes, you can bank your life on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And how do we know that's true? Well, there's a lot that we can point to. But I love the fact that in our text, the part that we didn't perhaps read, but we'll go through just here in just a second, is we find sort of the origin story of where all of these sort of new ideas and notions about Jesus' resurrection come from. Where does all of it come from? Where all these other stories come from? Well, look at verse 11. Because right after he rose from the dead, after the string of really scary, really supernatural sights occur in verse number 2 with the earthquake and the angel coming down and everything looking different, the Roman guards who were charged with keeping watch over that place where Jesus had been buried, they start scurrying for their life. They're hightailing it out of there. I mean, there's another earthquake, the second in the span of a weekend, and now there's an angel (laughs) Who's coming down out of heaven and it thrusts them back on their feet, as it says, like dead men. And when they finally come to, I imagine them scrambling, perhaps leaving swords and spears and shields in their wake as they are running back to the chief priests. (laughs) Scared out of their minds, they come huffing and puffing, as it says in verse number 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Imagine that report. (laughs) You're never going to believe what happened. We were there and then all of a sudden we were like fainted or something. Imagine trying to make sense of what those soldiers were trying to talk about. And what they say is that the tomb was opened. They give them a full report of what they had seen to these chief priests and the elders. And these chief priests and elders have a quick meeting and then they decide, they decide it would be better... If they just pay off the soldiers to keep their mouths shut. So they don't let the story get out. Notice verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders. So they, the soldiers come back. They tell these chief priests, these high leaders. All that had taken place. All they had seen. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And said tell people. Here's your story. His disciples came by night. And stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. (laughs) This, by the way, same group, same group of guys that had given their stamp of approval on Jesus' execution. Meaning, number one, that they were not at all interested in letting other people know the truth. The truth that the tomb was opened and that it was found empty, that no one can find his body. They They don't want any of that getting out. They don't want that getting out. But number two, because it's the same group of guys that led to, that that saw Jesus' crucifixion, these guys are not afraid to play dirty in order to keep their side of the story going. (laughs) You see, after getting rid of Jesus. By way of a really phony trial that's full of fake accusations and fake witnesses. Here their corruption goes to a little bit new levels, new lows of sliminess as they resort to bribery. As they give these soldiers hush money in order to keep the story quiet. <laughs> don't tell them what you... Don't tell them the real thing. Here, tell them this. And keep your mouth shut. It <laughs> had to have been a really significant hunk of change in order for that to be true. <laughs> Because again, think about, put yourself in the soldier's shoes. You've seen this thing, it scares you out of your mind. And now you have to go file a report to your superior officers. And in your report, you're going to be told that you have to report that you fell asleep. And that while you were sleeping, these group of guys came and stole the body. You have to admit that you were slacking off on your job. In this official report, you are putting your life on the line. For a guy, for a corpse we could say, that was a known and a tried and executed Roman traitor and Jewish blasphemer. This report should have sent these soldiers to the gallows. They were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. That's what they're filing so I, you can imagine, it had to be a hefty bag of cash that these priests and elders give them. And they give them that, that bag of money. They also give them the word. Don't worry though, as they say in verse 14, don't worry. If the governor finds out, a.k.a. Pilate, if Pilate finds out about this, we will, we will, we'll, we'll appease him, we'll satisfy him, we'll, we'll make him get off your back. Don't worry about it. You have our word, trustworthy guys. You have our word. So now these soldiers... As it says in verse fifteen, they, they take the money, it says verse fifteen, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And notice, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The rest is history. From that moment. The truth was silenced because these chief priests and elders did not want it to get out at all. They were doing their just to make sure that no one knows the truth. No one can know that the tomb was empty and that supernatural events were sealing the fact that something supernatural is happening. We have to explain it. Okay, so uh, his, his disciples, they, they stole it. That's what happened. And you just fell asleep. If you think about the story, it makes less and less sense. If you just think about it logically for just just a second If the guards were asleep How do they know who robbed the grave? Well they couldn't It's all circumstantial It wouldn't hold up in a court of law It's circumstantial evidence I mean you could say the, the apostles had motive They had all that kind of thing But you couldn't prove it You couldn't tie them to the scene And if you've watched any law and order show You know you have to have some piece of evidence That ties them there It's all circumstantial It wouldn't hold up And if the apostles were the grave robbers, I think this is the most damning piece of evidence. If they were the grave robbers, where did the courage come from? If you read all the gospel accounts of Jesus' arrest all the way through his crucifixion, where are the disciples? They are scattered, they are scared out of their minds, they're running for the hills. Jesus is arrested. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the king. And now he's being arrested and tried. They are not wanting any part of it. So much so that his closest friend, Peter, denies even knowing him. They're scattering for the hills. And when you find them in John 20, I love that little phrase. It's almost like passed off, almost without a second thought. We find them where? In a room with the doors locked. (laughs) Why? It says, for fear of the Jews. They're already being blamed for this. They're not relishing in the fact that they've pulled off a great heist. They are scared out of their minds. They are scared. They are worried. They are fearful. And yet somehow these fearful group of guys banded up, mustered up enough courage to go steal the body of Jesus from right under the noses of a Roman centurion? I don't think so. And if the guards, okay, and let's, let's go even further. If the guards were napping, let's, let's give the chief priests their story. If the guards were napping and the apostles were the tomb raiders, how did 11 guys roll a stone away from the tomb without waking up anyone? I mean, that's some heavy sleeping. You should go get checks. You may have something wrong with you. That's some really heavy sleeping. I don't think it, the whole thing is a sham. And you can, you can cut right through it. The chief priests and elders, they lied uh, to get Jesus crucified, and now they're lying again to uh, cover up his resurrection. It's lies all the way through, all the way down. They're just making the lie bigger. I think the irony of all of this is this, is that the fact that the chief priests and the elders were forced to explain the fact that the tomb was empty proves the tomb was empty. The reason why they have to come up for an explanation of all. Proves the fact that the tomb was left empty. Which leads us to the other sort of thing that we have to consider. If this resurrection. Was the resurrection a hoax? The disciples just make it up. I think no. <laughs> Clearly no. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Because I think, I think if, if the apostles were just making all of this up as the apostle paul he talks about this in 1st corinthians 15 by the way you know this person saw him this person saw him and 500 people saw him at one time if all of this had been faked it would have been exposed well before now someone would have cracked Someone would have not been able to withstand the pressure of keeping up this elaborate, world-spanning, generation-spanning conspiracy that this Jesus of Nazareth guy, this teacher, uh, rose from the dead. And even that, just think, think about it, As we, what we know from, about the apostles and what's happened to them after all this. Think, ask yourself, what did they have to gain by making up the story. What was in it for them? If they, if, they were, if they met in this room. And they all got together. Imagine this conversation. They all got in a room. They all got together. All these apostles. These 11 apostles of Jesus. And they said. You know what we should do? We should steal Jesus' body." What was in it for them? We can make up this legend that he resurrected from the dead. And you can imagine someone in the crowd saying, okay, what do we get out of it? And the guy comes in, well, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get excommunicated, and you're probably going to die. What would move them to do that? That's all the kickbacks that they get. For declaring the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, they don't get any sort of benefit, they don 't get propped up or lofted up, they don 't get any sort of exaltation. All of the lives of the apostles, it cost them everything to proclaim the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. All of them, all of his followers, were tortured or beaten or excommunicated or ridiculed or persecuted or killed. Who would keep the scam going if that's all they were getting in return? That is not a good return on investment. I don't think I would keep it going. <laughs> Folks, search high and low for proofs of the resurrection. Where's the evidence? You know what the, resurre- you know what the, the greatest in my mind proof of the resurrection is? It's right here, right now. The church. You, where you sit right now, you may not be knowing it. Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That as we gather, as we assemble, we are preaching the Lord's death till he comes. Here right now you are preaching to the world that the resurrection is true. You are the proof that Jesus didn't stay dead. Think about it. If all of Jesus' followers were running for the hills during the events of his arrest and eventual crucifixion, what stopped them from running? What brought them back together? What stopped them from staying in their scattered, scared, shadowy little corners? And what brought them back to form what is now known as the church of the living God? Why didn't they just go back to what they were doing before? Going back to being fishermen and carpenters and tradesmen? what made them want to give up their lives to risk everything the only difference between the apostles that we find at the end of the gospels who are scared of their minds to have any sort of allegiance with Jesus and the apostles in the book of acts who are turning the world upside down with the declaration of the good news the only difference as you flip the page is the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that's the in fact that's the only possible answer. There's simply no other way to explain the rest of the Bible let alone the rest of history without accepting the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All of church history depends on this one fact. All of history does. The only thing that could rally these. Disperse disciples back together, the only thing that could turn a bunch of cowards into courageous apostles and church planters and preachers, the only thing that could fill their hearts that were, that were so defeated and so downtrodden with the assurance of victory, the only thing that could make generation after generation of people continue to gather and assemble as a unified body of Jesus Christ despite threats of violence, despite threats of persecution. And death. The only thing responsible for all of that is the fact that he is not here, for he has risen. Amen. That's the only thing that's responsible for any of that you can't explain it all without explaining it out of the great and glorious fact that he is not in the grave that yes he might have stayed dead but he or he might have died for our sins but he didn't stay dead that's the news that changes the world that's the news that goes down to the heart and soul of every single person that has ever walked across the threshold of the church and said i believe that's what it does you can see it happen right in this very moment in chapter 28 of Matthew. Really quickly, as we're thinking about what the resurrection does. I think there's three repercussions, ramifications, consequences of the resurrection that are here dispelled for us. That are, that are here clearly laid out for us. And they were just as life changing, they are just as life changing today as they were then. Because you see, when I say that that the resurrection changes everything, I truly believe that it does. First of all, I want you to see that the resurrection settles us down. The resurrection settles us down. If you read all of the resurrection accounts, one thing that's common. There's some details that you have to harmonize and that you have to kind of figure out the timeline. But the one thing that's common throughout all the resurrection accounts is that this was a very chaotic and, and, and com- uh, very uh, a sense of commotion fills this morning. That's the common thread. There's all... This talk of people going here, there, and yon. There's all this, this, this commotion that fills these accounts. And I think it's especially true of Matthew. Where we find this really, you can almost get this tranquil sense of peace as this morning opens the dawn after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and all the other women, they're going to the tomb, and yes, they're very downcast, they're, they're sad, they're sorrowful, but they're going to pay respects to their Lord, to their teacher. They're going to give him some embalming on his corpse. And that morning is thrown into all kinds of chaos. As it says, you know, after the first day, after the Sabbath, excuse me, toward the, first, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Again, as I said earlier, it's the second earthquake in the span of one weekend. (laughs) There was an earthquake when Jesus died, and now there's an earthquake when he rose from the dead. And add to that now the appearance of an angel from heaven who rolls back the stone and, and, and he sits upon it. And I imagine him sort of sitting with his arms crossed, sort of defiantly on top of the stone. And you can imagine, how, no wonder why everyone was thrown into such a tizzy. The women, too, as they come to the, the tomb and they see it empty. Not sure of what that means. They see it open. Not sure of what that means. And in the middle of that commotion, what do we hear? What are the words? Verse number five, do not be afraid. Words that settled down the hearts of those women right away. They could find calm in the assurance of what? That he is not here. All of their feelings of dread, all of their feelings of despair, all of their feelings of not knowing and their confusion, all of that that was filling their minds as they arrived at the tomb, seeing the stone door rolled away and that angel sitting on top of it. There was no cause, though, for worry or fear or alarm. Why? Because the angel tells them Jesus isn't here, He's risen, He's alive. And then he tells them to go tell the others. I love that. He says, don't, go make sure everyone knows. Make sure everyone hears and knows what's happening. And as they were on their way, Jesus shows up. Verse number nine, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. They're filled with all kinds of thoughts, I imagine. Okay, this angel's telling us Jesus is alive. We've got to go tell the other guys. And as they're going, as they're, it says they're going quickly with great fear and great joy. As they're going, Jesus shows up in the middle of the road. And he says greetings. Basically, he says to them, hey, what's up? Imagine being greeted by Jesus in the middle of the way. Immediately, what is his words? Don't be afraid. Words that settle down. The souls of these sorrowful, fearful people. You see, it's one thing, of course, for an angel to tell you not to be afraid. It's another thing entirely for the risen Lord of all things to say the same thing. And it's a wonderful image, is it not, that the Son of God, the Son of God who has just risen from the dead, what does he do? What's on his mind? He enters into the space of these women's fears and doubts in order to settle them down. And he does the same thing for the apostles. Look at verse 16. Uh, Eventually it says, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshiped Him, but some doubted. And what does Jesus give them a promise? Verse 20, "Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Words which, you can be sure, dispelled all the fears and answered all the doubts of any disciples who were there in that moment. Seeing Jesus give them direction and give them this great commission. Essentially, he says, don't be afraid. Don't worry. I'm going to be with you. He settles down those who follow him. From all of their trouble, from all of their worry, from all of their fear. You see, that's what makes our God such an amazing God. He is not aloof to what troubles us. He's not disinterested in what gets you down. He is not uh, distant from what causes you fear, uh, what causes you perplexity. Rather, what does he do? He shows up right in the midst of all of that fear and chaos and commotion and uncertainty. And he points to himself and says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. God always shows up. In the midst of our doubt and fear. And he points to his word of promise. And he says. This is what you can bank on. This is what you can trust on. Don't be afraid. I am with you. My friends. That's still true to this day. That promise. That I am with you. To the end of the age. It hasn't run out. This world that's full of chaos and frenzy and commotion and scandal and strife, all of it. It can fill your head with all kinds of noise. It can fill your head with all kinds of fears and doubts. And the same word of promise cuts through all of that and it reminds us, don't be afraid for I am risen indeed. You see, we don't, We don't have to doubt or fear. And yet even when we do, what is true of God's word of promise? He shows up in the midst of our doubts and our fears. And he reminds us that he's alive. That's what keeps us settled. That's what keeps us steady. The resurrection settles us down. Number two though, the resurrection not only settles us down, it summons us in. The resurrection summons us in. Because I think I love the fact that as Matthew records it. He records for us in verse number 2 that it was the angel who rolled back the stone. Did you catch that in verse 2? And behold there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat on it. You see, chronologically speaking, the events of this verse, verse number 2, with the angel coming down and a lot of other kind of stuff. This is what immediately prompted the soldiers to hightail it away from their post. Which is where we get to in verse number 11. Which is just to say that when the women get there, no one's there. Again, go back and put yourself in their shoes as you're walking up to a place where you expect there to be a Roman garrison there guarding this tomb. You expect it to be sealed. You expect it to be somewhat normal. And you're going to request their help. They open the tomb so that you can bring your spices. So you can embalm the Lord's body. So you can pay respects to the one whom you love so much. And what do you find when you get there? A tomb that's open. And all kinds of Roman guard paraphernalia strewn everywhere. As they've sprinted out of there. And only that you find out that the tomb is empty. And there's an angel inside. And an angel tells you. What? Verse number 6. Don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Come and see the place where he lay. He tells them to go inside. See for yourselves what I have told you is true. You see the point is this. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled back in order to rise from the dead. He'd already risen. That had already happened. The stone that sealed Jesus' tomb was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was to let them in. It was to let them believe. You see, that's what this empty tomb is for these women, for John, or uh, um, for Peter and John and John chapter 20 who run to the tomb later. Why is the tomb opened? It's not to let Jesus out, it's to let his followers in, in to believe. That's what the empty tomb is. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for you and I to believe everything that Jesus said, in fact, is true. That the cross worked, that death is defeated, that sin is no more. It's been swallowed by his death, that now our forgiveness is sure and certain and victory is won. All of that's true. It really is finished. And why can you believe that? Because the tomb is open. He's not here. For he has risen, the angel tells them. (laughs) Words that invite them and it invites us even still to put our faith in what Jesus has accomplished. What Jesus has finished on that wretched, awful Roman cross. All that he finished there on that very horrible, no good Friday. Yes, all of what he finished there has been finished for you. And it is finished for certain. You can bank in it. You can cast your life on it. My friends, the tomb is still empty. The invitation is still open. And just like the angel, he invites us to come and see. Come and see for yourselves. And believe just like the women, just like the apostles, you and I are invited on this very Easter morning. You are summoned into the family of God by looking upon an empty tomb. Did you notice? I love the fact what Jesus says in verse number 10. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell who? Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. The very guys, as we've already noted, who scattered, left him, deserted him. The very ones who left Jesus in his hour of need. What does he call them? Brothers. You see, this is, this is what all of this invitation is. It's an invitation into the family of God. That at the moment of your belief, you become a son and daughter of the living God. You become part of his family. Do you believe This morning, in that good news, the resurrection settles us down. It summons us in. And lastly, number three, it sends us out. The resurrection sends us out because I love the fact that the angel calls these women and he gives them this task to become the very first messengers of this good news. As he says in verse 7, he says verse 6, come see the place, see the place where he lay, it's empty. The tomb is empty, you can see for yourselves. And then he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. It's a very poetic moment, I think, in a lot of ways. It reminds me of those wee morning hours when Jesus was first born. And the first messengers of his birth are who? Nothing but a lowly bunch of measly shepherds. Who go to that place where Jesus is born and they become the first messengers, the first heralds of the fact that the Savior has been born. And now, who are the first to herald the message of Jesus' resurrection? A bunch of lowly, unassuming women. (laughs) And they're told by the angels, Go and tell. And Jesus repeats the same thing. Verse number 10 Do not be afraid, go and tell. Go let others know. Go let them know. Inform them of what has occurred and what you've seen and what you've witnessed. And essentially you could boil all of what Jesus says in verses eighteen through twenty to those those words go and tell. Notice what he says in verse 18. The great commission that you are probably familiar with. And Jesus came and said to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells his apostles the same thing. He sends them out. Go and tell. Go and let them know. And you can see this. If you you wanted to, you could go right into the book of Acts. From this very moment, you would find a repeated great commission in Acts chapter 1. And as soon as Acts chapter 2 hits, what do you find? The apostles preaching about what? The resurrection. Almost every sermon that you hear about in the book of Acts deals with that specific fact. That the resurrection happened. We were there. We saw him. We were with him. And we're telling you to believe. And they risk life and limb for that. Why? Because they saw him. They were given this commission to believe. And they did. You see my friends. The mission of the church. Is still just those two words. Go. Tell. We who believe, and there's good news here this morning, that Jesus didn't stay dead after dying for sins, but rose from the dead. We have been given a commission. We too are sent out with a purpose on a mission. And we are given the same sense of calling that these apostles were given. Go and tell and make disciples as it is in Acts. Go and be my witnesses. If the resurrection is true, there's nothing more urgent you or I could ever share with anyone other than that fact. That yes, Jesus died bearing the full weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. But he didn't stay dead. The only thing that died there was the penalty for your sin. Because yes, if you believe in Jesus, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who believe. The only thing that's dead after the cross is your sin and guilt and shame. If that's true, we, we of all people, have the most urgent news that we could ever share with anyone. That Jesus, yes, was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was also raised up for our justification. This is the news that changes everything as we know it. Everything is different. Because ours is a world of Easter. Ours is an Easter world. Jesus rose from the dead. And that means all that has ever been said by him is true. You can bank on it. You can trust in it. Trust in it, yes, with your very life. I don't know what the future holds for you. If it's, it's, actually, it's actually interesting. If you go, you don't have to go there, but in, in John, you know, the book of John at the end, Peter goes up to Jesus and asks, what's it going to become of everyone? He's asking about his friends. And Jesus tells him, don't worry about that. You just, you just trust me. Put your faith in me. I don't know what's coming for each of you here this morning. Some sort of life circumstance that shakes your faith that rocks you to the core. Who knows what's coming in this world for those who say they believe in Jesus as the one true authority. Who knows what that's going to mean in the years to come. But you can be sure that the resurrection is true. It settles you down. It summons you in. It sends you out. You can bank on this fact, my friends. Yes, even if need be with your very life. And like the apostles, we could take our place among the saints in the great cloud of witnesses. You know, this is is extra, but you know in Hebrews 11, you know what you're reading about? You're reading about people who believed in this very thing. Some of whom were not around when Jesus rose from the dead, perhaps. The book of Hebrews was written some 30 years after Jesus was crucified and ascended. So 30 years later, what are, they, what are they reading about? They're reading about people who went before them. Who risk life and limb for what purpose? Well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they are risking it for nothing. A hoax. A conspiracy that gave them no benefit in return. Why is it that call? Why is it that we call it a hall of faith? Because Jesus is alive. And they believed at great risk to themselves. If you read Hebrews 11, there's this great passage at the end of that chapter. And it talks about this this unknown number of unnamed saints. (laughs) You know, it lists all these great figures of the faith. Daniel, Gideon, David. All these ones you you would remark upon. Look at their faith. And then it says at the end, and many others, (laughs) many others were sawed in half, were thrown to lions, were persecuted beyond belief. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay dead, my friends. The greatest repercussion of the resurrection is the fact that everything changes at that moment. It changes for you, and it changes for me, and it changes for the world. This book is true. Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray.